Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So uh, if I had a top 20 books, if I said, here are 20 classic Christian works that you need to read, on that list would be a book by Dr. Paul Brand called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Paul Brand is a physician. He's also a follower of Jesus. And so he brings those two together using a verse from Psalm 139 to say, really, if you look at our physical body, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at our cells, look at our bones, look at our muscles, look how we all work together to create a human body. This story I share with you, though, by the way, I just gave you a good idea for a Christmas gift if you need one. This story is not in the book, but it is my favorite Paul Brand story. It's a little graphic, and so I'll, I'll tone it down just a bit. He was a junior doctor in London. An 81-year-old cancer survivor named Miss Twig was in his ward. She, again, 81 years old, cancer survivor. They had removed her larynx and the surrounding tissue. She was spry. She was courageous. She was doing everything she could to survive. Well, Paul Brand received an urgent summons to come to her ward one day. He walked in, and he found her bleeding from her mouth, which he knew it was a sign that the artery in the back of her throat had collapsed. And if he didn't do something, then she would bleed out. And so waiting on the doctor and waiting on the, the anesthetist, he, he had to do all that he could do in order to preserve her life. So he knew there was only one thing to do. That was apply pressure to the artery at the back of her throat. We settled into position. This is what Paul Brand writes. My right arm was crooked behind her head, supporting her. My left hand nearly disappeared inside her contorted mouth, allowing my index finger to apply pressure to the critical point at the back of her throat. I knew from visits to the dentist how fatiguing and painful it must be for tiny Miss Twig to stretch her mouth open wide enough to surround my entire hand. But I could see in her intense blue eyes a resolution to maintain that position for days if necessary. With her face a few inches from mine, I could sense her fear. Her eyes pleaded mutely, don't move, don't let go. She knew as I did that if I relaxed our awkward position, she would bleed to death. So we sat like this for nearly two hours. Can you imagine? Her imploring eyes never left mine. Twice during that first hour, when muscle cramps painfully seized my hand, I tried to move to see if the bleeding had stopped, but it had not and Miss Twig gripped my shoulder in fear. I'll never know how I lasted that second hour. My muscles cried out in agony. My fingertip grew totally numb. I, somebody's getting a phone call. I thought of rock climbers who had held their fallen partners for hours by a single rope. In this case, the cramping four-inch length of my finger grew so numb that I couldn't feel it, and it was the single strand restraining life from falling away. I, a junior doctor in my 20s, and this 81-year-old woman clung to each other superhumanly because we had no other choice. Her survival demanded it. Finally, the surgeon came, and they wheeled us into the operating room. There, everyone stood poised with gleaming tools, and I slowly removed my finger, and when I did, a smile spread across her bruised lips. The clot held. 
she would be all right. With no larynx, only her eyes could express the gratitude. She knew how my muscles had suffered, and I knew the depths of her fear. In those two hours, hear this, in those two hours in a slumberous hospital wing, we had become almost one person. We teach in the Christian faith that God holds on to us. But it sure is nice when the spiritual God who we believe exists, it sure is nice when that's coupled with a physical presence, literally, to hold on to us. We need that in each other, but also we need that in each other, and God knows that we have that need for that physical touch, so much so that Jesus' incarnation, He is that physical touch that we need, and He holds on to you today. I want to say it again. His presence is here even if you can't feel Him. He's at work even when you can't see what He's doing, and He holds on to you even if you have no idea what He's doing and what comes next. So we need God to hold on to us. We also need a physical manifestation of that. And that's the story of Ruth and Naomi. I'm going to recap Ruth chapter 1 as we go into Ruth chapter 2 today. Naomi and Elimelech, married couple. They live in Bethlehem. There's a famine, so they move east out of the Holy Land into the pagan land of Moab, or as it was pronounced in the ancient world, Arkansas. <laughs> they moved east, okay. After ten years in the pagan land of Fayetteville, <laughs> at least now you have a geographical picture of it, right? Did I hear somebody just hiss me? <laughs> I actually love that. You're just, you're just asking me to do it some more. Naomi's husband had died, sons had died. She was left only with two daughter-in-laws. They were natives of Moab, and so she expected them to stay there. But Ruth is the one who hung on. She clung to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Isn't it good? As Naomi's life was hemorrhaging grief, she was there to hang on. And so now they come back into Bethlehem, back to Naomi's hometown, a place that Ruth had never been before. And the end of chapter 1, the last line is, as the barley harvest is coming in, which sends a signal, the famine is over, maybe there's hope on the horizon. So Marissa is going to read Ruth chapter 2. My encouragement is, engage your mind. If, if it's helpful for you to look on the page, do that. If it's helpful for you to close your eyes and imagine the scene as a cinematographer, don't just unplug during this time. Listen. And Marissa, when she finishes, she will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond with, thanks be to God. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. 
She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks from her bundle or from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about one ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over from what she had eaten. Her mother-in-law asked her, "Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you." Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to Ruth chapter 2. And when I finished writing this message and got ready to file it away, I literally said out loud, I said, this message is just sloppy. You know, I like to have things operate in a nice linear way, and as I wrote this message, it kind of jumped around here and there, but, but even then, sometimes it's good just to be a little sloppy, uh, just as a way of illustration. I love a good fine meal, but I also love a really sloppy chili dog. Is anybody there with me? Yeah. So one of my favorite nights is Thursday nights. My wife usually has bunko or she's out with friends, and so I'll come home and she'll say the magic words. She says, dinner's on you tonight. And so I'll go get bread, I'll go get a hot dog, I'll get chili, and then I'll go to the refrigerator and I'll just, whatever else is there that might even remotely fit on a chili dog, I just throw it on the plate. And it's nasty and it's absolutely wonderful. So there's some meals that are a little bit sloppy, but that's actually what makes them good. Now some of you are going to go to Coney Islander right after church, aren't you? Yeah, you've got to, kind of got it in your mind. So we're going to jump around all over the place, but, it, but it's, it's good. 
So we start this chapter with a couple of names, one that we've heard before, Elimelech. This is the husband of Naomi. Now, here's why his name is important. It shows up in chapter 1. It shows up in chapter 2. It shows up again in chapter 4. If you read the book of Ruth, it seems like God is nowhere to be found. We, we never get a hint that God is doing this or God is performing this miracle or God is nudging a person in this direction. God is very much in the background, but every now and then, Eli Melech's name is dropped. And you know what his name means? God is king. So there's kind of this background happening of even though all the events seem to be happening on a very human level, it seems that God is operating in hidden and mysterious ways. Have you heard it yet? God is present even when you can't feel Him. He's at work even if you can't see Him. And He is holding you even when, and I would say especially when, you have no idea what He's up to. So, Elimelech's name is dropped. Then we meet a new person, Boaz. His name means he is strength. Just a little trivia piece that I like. When Boaz's great-great-grandson, Solomon, built a temple in Jerusalem, there were two supporting columns, one of which Solomon named Boaz. It means he is strength. That's obvious. You know, a column is something that supports. That, that's kind of who Boaz was and who Boaz is. He was a person of strength. And the exact word used of him in Ruth chapter 2, it says that he was a man of honor. The Hebrew word there is gibor. It can mean a wealthy man. It can mean a military veteran, somebody who's seen action. Or it could just mean an all-around stand-up guy. It has a lot of connotations. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, we, uh, we took a, just an impromptu trip to Paris, Texas. Isn't it great that you can just, just one day wake up and go, let's go to Paris, Texas, yeah. And so we were driving down through Oklahoma, and we were passing through Hugo, and in the card catalog of my mind, I remember reading or hearing about the Circus Cemetery in Hugo, Oklahoma. Have any of you ever been there before? It really is. The next time you drive through, it's just a, at a little cemetery there. Uh, it's, evidently, it's where circuses would winter in Hugo, and when a person would die there, they would be buried. And so it's some very interesting headstones and some very interesting memorials, but my wife picked on, some, on something that I would have missed. On top of the tombstones, on most of them, there were coins on the top. And I didn't really give it much mind, but my wife talked to the caretaker to see what the coins were about, and here's what the caretaker said. He said, actually, that, that's something that this this circus cemetery inherited from the military. And so it's a practice in military cemeteries as well that when a person visits the graveside, if they knew the deceased, they would leave a penny. It just shows that they had visited. If they trained with the deceased, they'll leave a nickel. If they saw action with the deceased, they would leave a dime. And if they were there when the person died, they would leave a quarter. You see what it is. It's a way of sending a message to the, to the family. And so we saw all these coins and, and thinking about the military element of this. Bottom line, here's the thing I want you to know about Boaz. He was a soldier, not a clown. Long way to get to that point, wasn't it? But it was well worth it. You could have driven to Hugo and back in that time, right? He was not a clown. He was a stand-up individual, okay? And what the Scripture says here, I think it's in verse 3, it said, Ruth just so happened 
just by chance, she happened to walk into the field of Boaz. Now, again, what some people would call coincidence, what we see through the eyes of faith is called providence. That God, again, Elimelech, God is king. He's kind of directing our paths. So she stumbles into the field of Boaz, who's a distant relative of Naomi, to glean. Now, here's where I'm going to throw some more things on the chili dog. Ready? This is a great chapter on generosity. Um, gleaning, just so you'll know the historical background, it goes all the way back to Leviticus 19. When the Israelites said, when you enter the land, just remember your wealth is not yours. Your wealth is a gift of God. And so when you harvest a field, don't go all the way to the edges. Leave something on the end. When you go over a fruit tree, say an olive tree, and you use some sticks to, to bang off the fruit, don't go over it twice. Leave some there on the edges. Leave something in the branches so that the poor can come along behind. And not only are you being generous to them, but you're also enabling them to have dignity in working for something for themselves because they don't own land, but you do. And so Ruth does a really good job of setting down some values of generosity. So historically, in the time I've been here, in the time I've been a pastor, I've been very reluctant to talk about money because I grew up in the 80s and 90s where there were a lot of evangelists taking a lot of advantage of people. And so I just, I kind of have a, 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 a guard against that. But I think it's good to be reminded about generosity. Plus, I know anytime I talk about money, it's always somebody's first Sunday here. Welcome to First Baptist Tulsa, right? <laughs> but here's, this is non-manipulation. This is just the truth. When it comes to generosity, generosity is both a duty and a delight. The thing is, is you have to go through the duty part of it before you get to the delight. And if you take tithing, you say, you know, I, I just give because God has commanded, it, commanded me to do this. But as you execute that duty, you start to see the benefits, you start to see the lives changed, and then comes the delight. There's a part where we just obey, but in our obedience, that's how we get to the enjoyment. Here's another principle I see here. Giving is an exercise of our faith. It also is an exercise against pushing back your fear. Why do I mean that? So, so we give by faith because God has commanded us to, but it's also a way of addressing the fear in our lives because we all operate by a scarcity mentality. You know, I need to harvest all the way to the edge because someday I might not have enough. I need to go over the fruit tree twice because I don't know if next season's going to be a famine or not, but here's the deal. The same God that will care for the poor will take care of you. So generosity is a way of exercising our faith. It's also a way of confronting our fear to say, no matter what the future holds, God will take care of me. But here's my biggest principle on generosity that I see. Generosity begets generosity. You know, I've had people teach me a lot about generosity, and that's helped a little bit. But when I see somebody else be generous, and they model that for me, I go, that, I didn't know that was possible. So you see this in, in the narrative of Ruth. You see Boaz being generous to Ruth, Ruth being gener generous to Naomi, Naomi being generous to Ruth, Ruth being generous to Boaz, it all circles back on itself. Generosity begets generosity. Here's one more thing. 
Boaz did not give to Ruth because of who Ruth was. He gave to Ruth because of who he was. So, so when Boaz finds out Ruth is a Moabite, she's a foreigner, he could easily have said, Leviticus 19 doesn't apply to you. You're not allowed to be in my field. You're a foreigner. You're a pagan. Get out. But Boaz did not practice generosity because of who Ruth was. He practiced generosity because of who he was. And so does this not apply? <laughs> Listen, we don't give to people because of who they are. And it's really easy to say, well, they're poor. They need to get a job. Why are we doing this? You know, if I give them money, they might buy a cigarette. Yeah, they very well may. In fact, if you give, you will be taken advantage of. But also, if you give, you will do a lot of good. We don't practice generosity because of who they are. We practice generosity because of who we are and who we are in Christ. And if he says be generous, we, we be generous. So where Boaz's generosity is really seen is in the way he blesses Ruth. So here's going to be the walkaway application for us. I'm just dumping more on the chili dog. I think these are the jalapenos I'm going to pull out and, and dump it on there. Are you tired of that metaphor yet? I will use it all day long. <laughs> Boaz blesses Ruth in two ways. And here's my charge for you this week. He blesses Ruth through his words. He also blesses her through his actions. And by the way, that's how we are. That's really the only two things we have to bless other people. Okay? So as you go into this week, and I know bless is kind of a churchy sounding word. It means to benefit somebody in the name of God. You can bless people this week through your words. You can also destroy people with your words. What if you make the pledge before you and God right now, I'm going to bless people with my words. So we see Boaz do this in verse 12. Um, he says this, um, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, for, for all that Ruth has done for Naomi, under whose wing you have come for refuge. He blesses her with his words. You are under God's protection. By the way, God's present even when you don't feel him. He's at work even when you don't see him. He holds you in his hands even when you have no idea what he's up to. And Boaz says, God's covering you right now, whether you fully appreciate it or not. So I visited a friend in the hospital a couple of weeks ago, and with her permission, she allowed me to share this story, and I'll do it anonymously. My friend was leaving a restaurant, fell, was in too much of a hurry. It was cold outside, rushing to get in the car. She fell and broke her hip. And so they were waiting for the EMTs arrive. She said, but, and, and as she shared the story, she got a little emotional. She said, the most beautiful thing was I was laying there on the cold pavement, which is not what I wanted. I was just trying to get in the car. But the customers all came out of the restaurant and they took off their coats and they all laid their coats over me and around me. It's just good to know that there's still good people in the world. Isn't that good to know? Yeah. Be one of those people. But, but Boaz blesses her with these words to say, I know it's a cold world, but you're covered. May his wing be over you. Okay? So not only does Boaz bless her with his words, which is how we are called to bless people, Boaz also blesses her with her actions, excuse me, with his actions, and it is an unexpected action. In fact, we read it and we kind of read right past it, 
But I think the first readers of, of Ruth would go back and say, did I hear that right? So it's mealtime. All the workers take a break. They come into the shade. Boaz, the patriarch, the Gabor, the wealthy man, the soldier, the stand-up guy, he takes wheat and wine, and he serves Ruth. That is just backwards the way it should be. Ruth is the low person on the totem pole. Ruth should be the one serving. But Boaz, the leader, serves her. You know what it reminds me of? Our Lord and Savior taking wheat and wine around his table and serving the disciples. Just backwards. We should have been serving him. But he serves us. And not only did Jesus serve his disciples 2,000 years ago, when we receive this today, it's his hand that serves us. So let's go ahead and open this up. I would encourage you to take off the plastic for the piece of bread, put it aside, turn it over, go ahead and uncover the cup. You don't need me to tell you what to do, but I am anyway. <laughs> we all could use a little instruction. By the way, I often say that this table is an open table. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter that you're a member of this church or that you identify as a Baptist. That's not what's important at this moment. At this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to this table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just watch carefully what we do here in these next few moments. Because Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples then and the disciples today are served from the hand of the master. In the same way, it was after the supper, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns for us again. And the disciples then and the disciples today take the cup from the hand of the master. Jesus, thank you for blessing us through your words and actions. May we be the same kind of people this week as your light and your salt in the world. Amen. So there's one more thing I want to touch on before we finish up. And this phrase is mentioned at the end of chapter 2, but I want to wait and do the full unpacking of this in chapter 4. Ruth returns back home. She has a whole ephah of grain kind of held in her shawl, which would have been about 30 pounds. It's enough for her to carry. She carries it back. She dumps it all out before Naomi. By the way, 30 pounds of wheat, that would be enough for them to live for a month. And so the immediate struggle of how do we get food, there, there's, this, there's this moment that they have of saying we have a little bit of security. So, Ruth, where did you get all this? Well, I went to the field of Boaz. Like Bob comes on for Naomi, he's a distant relative. He is our, and my translation says, guardian redeemer. Some of us grew up hearing kinsman redeemer. So the kinsman redeemer was a person responsible, he's the patriarch of the family, and he was responsible for two things, protecting the family from starvation. He was there to provide food 
for his family, to make sure that they were taken care of. Um, how many of you, this is going to seem a little off the topic right now, how many of you are big Marvel movie fans? Anybody else? Iron Man, that sort of thing? Love that. So Robert Downey Jr., who played Iron Man, if you know his story, he had problems with drugs for many years. But he had one experience that completely and radically changed his life. He stopped off at Burger King to get a Whopper and a soda and fries, and he said it was so bad, it was terrible. He said, I had this premonition of something terrible happening, so he threw away the hamburger, went and threw away all his drugs, and has been clean ever since. So Burger King saved his life. <laughs> the reason I tell you that is because my first job was working at Burger King. I often tell you, be careful of the way that you handle the guy or the gal behind the fast food counter, they may be your pastor one day. <laughs> so I, I worked at Burger King growing up, so here's my narrative that, um, you know, forget the fact that I worked in Texas and Robert Downey Jr. was in California. I think I made the burger for him. And so I made the burger that changed his life and then Robert Downey Jr. saved us from Thanos. So basically, I saved the universe. Just saying to just put it out there. You're welcome. <laughs> One bad meal changed his life. For Ruth, one good meal changed her life. Not so much the wheat that she brought home, but the name that she brought home, Boaz. One theologian says that when she said the name Boaz, the sun rose in Naomi's mind after such a time of darkness. The other thing that a kinsman redeemer would do is to provide not only protection from starvation, but, and I'll say it was salvation, to provide a sense of security over them. So this is where we get an advanced echo of Jesus in the Older Testament. A lot of titles that would be used to foreshadow Christ. Kinsman Redeemer is one of them. That we have somebody who feeds our soul, that is Jesus, and somebody who offers us salvation. Do you know that the human eye can see a single candle burning in the dark from 30 miles away. The human eye can pick up on something in the distance. We have no idea when Ruth saw Boaz if she could look ahead and to see the coming of Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. We don't know. My guess is not. But I know for sure that we can look back 2,000 years and we could see the coming of Jesus and He be the light that we've been looking for for so long to feed us, to save us, to keep us from starving, to help us experience salvation, and we are to live our lives under the protection of His wing, under the protection of His cross. So I say this today for those of you who have been contemplating Jesus, thinking about Jesus. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's good to reaffirm that He is the one under whom wings we have come for security. But if you feel like you're out there on your own, you don't have to be. Because it's good to know that God holds on to us, right? But it's also good when God who holds on to us takes a physical form. And by the way, that's exactly what He did in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who touches us and holds on to us no matter what. You see, His presence is with you even when you don't feel it. He's at work even when you don't see Him. And He holds you in Christ even when you have no idea what He's doing. Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray together.
Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.